Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 159 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is film producer Jason Blum. He's one of the most prolific producers in Hollywood, having worked on over 50 movies mostly low-budget horror films like Paranormal Activity, The Purge, and Sinister. He also recently edited the anthology The Blumhouse Book of Nightmares, The Haunted City, which includes short fiction by Hollywood figures like Ethan Hawke and Eli Roth. And we have an actual sponsor for today's show, which is very exciting. Now, if you're a long-time listener, you may remember that we had a sponsor for episodes 22 through 27. What you may not know is that back then I was really ready to shelve Geek's Guide to the Galaxy permanently and getting that sponsor was what convinced me to keep going. Unfortunately, that sponsor only lasted six episodes, but by that point I'd already agreed to keep doing the show, and now here we are 132 episodes later. If you followed our Patreon campaign from earlier this year, you'll know that this show has never brought in enough money to justify the time and effort it takes to produce it, and that I've really been doing this as a labor of love. Thanks to our partnership with Wired.com, and the funds we're getting through Patreon and PayPal, I'm on track this year to break the poverty line for the first time in almost six years of hosting the show. That's a big accomplishment that I'm really proud of, and I'm very grateful to all of our supporters who helped make that possible, but I honestly don't know how much longer I can keep working such long hours for such low pay. So the current plan is to keep the show going through the end of 2015, which is a promise I made to our Patreon backers, but beyond that things are kind of up in the air. Realistically speaking, if the show is going to continue for another year or two, We either need a lot more Patreon patrons, or we need to sign up a bunch of sponsors, or both. So I just hope people understand that sponsors are part of keeping a show like this alive, and that by supporting the sponsors, you're helping to support the show. And so our sponsor for today's show is Casper Mattress. Now, I wasn't familiar with them last week when they approached us about sponsoring the show, and I thought it was sort of random that a mattress company would want to sponsor a geek podcast. But then later I was browsing the internet, and I came across the headline, Leonardo DiCaprio invested in a mattress company, and I thought to myself, just as a joke, hey, maybe it's Casper Mattress. But then I read the article, and it actually was about Casper Mattress, and it mentioned that people like Tobey Maguire and Adam Levine are also investing in the company. So that was my first clue that Casper wasn't just some random mattress company. So I did a bit more research, and now I can sort of see why they're reaching out to the geek audience, because it turns out that Casper is a pretty high-profile, well-funded startup, sort of like the Tesla of mattress companies where they don't have dealerships, and instead you just order a mattress over the internet, and it gets shipped to you in a box that's the size of a mini-fridge, and then you open up the box and the mattress just naturally expands into a normal-sized mattress. You can go watch videos on YouTube of people unboxing their Casper mattresses, and in all the ones I saw, people gave the mattresses good reviews and said they're really comfortable. And I also gather that since Casper doesn't have all the overhead of showrooms and salesmen, they're able to set much lower prices. So it's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size one. And the idea of ordering online really appeals to me, since every time I walk into a store it always makes me really uncomfortable, there are people trying to sell you stuff, and you have no idea what you're doing, and you feel really awkward walking out without buying anything, so you just end up buying some random thing, and you have no idea if it's what you want or what the price should be. But with Casper, you know up front what the price is, and you don't have to deal with any salesman at all. The mattress arrives in the mail, and you have 100 days to try it out, and if you decide not to keep it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. 
So if anyone out there needs a mattress, you should head on over to casper.com galaxy and use the code galaxy when you check out and you'll get a $50 discount and Casper will know that sponsoring this show is a worthwhile thing to do and that will help us continue bringing you new episodes. So again, that's casper.com galaxy. All right. And so now let's get to our interview. All right. So we're here with Jason Blum. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first off, just tell us a bit about how you became a horror fan, and were there any particular books or movies that really got you into it? You know, my mother loved uh, Edgar Allan Poe, so she exposed me to Edgar Allan Poe at, a, at probably a little bit too young of an age, hmm. um, and uh, so that was on the book front. I always also, our favorite holiday was uh, was Halloween. I say art, because she and I used to uh, start my Halloween costume in uh, in August. So I've really, since I was a kid, I always liked scary stuff. And so how about movies? What sort of movies really got you into horror? I think the, the, the you know, it's horror thriller, but definitely Hitchcock is my favorite genre movie director. Um, I was lucky enough in college, I took a class of just Hitchcock movies. So every week we saw two Hitchcock movies and talked about them. It was a pretty awesome thing. Um, I think the movie that scared me the most uh, not I think the movie that scared me the most was Friday the 13th, which I saw alone at home, like right at the beginning of like when HBO just started out. I was in the, my cousin's house in uh, in Los Angeles, and it it I, it frightened me too much. It's like playing with fire; like you want to put your hand in the fire even though it hurts. But I definitely like always in in uh, movies in one form or another. Even in college, I was a film major. I made a bunch of movies when I was in college. After college, I I uh, I just worked on more art house movies. So the first movie I ever produced was a movie called Kicking and Screaming, which was Noah Baumbach's uh, first movie. And I worked at a distribution company in New York, a little company called Arrow. And then I worked at Miramax um, until I was 30. And it really wasn't until I, a few years after I left Miramax that I... Uh, I found, you know, I figured out what Blumhouse would be, which is our company that we have now. Right. And so I've heard you say that one of the big things in your life that had a big impact on you was that you passed on the Blair Witch Project. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. So I, uh, when I was working for, for Miramax, um, before Sundance, a, a videotape of the Blair Witch Project of the full completed movie went to a lot of the buyers. And so we all saw it before the festival. And I passed, a bunch of people passed then. The the worst uh, crime, I suppose, was once it screened at the festival, we still all passed. Um, I passed on it, and when it was bought at the at Sundance, it was one of the smaller deals of the festival. The big deal of the festival was actually one I was involved in was a movie called Happy Texas, which uh, did not do terribly well after we bought it. But that was the deal everyone talked about. No one really talked about Blair Witch. And then for, I think it was six to nine months from when Sundance happened to when the movie opened, I, I watched the movie Marching Towards Success and was reminded by my bosses what a, what a dope I was. And I guess what was formative about the experience is that I saw so many people who were older than I was and knew so much more than I did also kind of pass on this movie. And it really gave me, when I first saw Paranormal Activity, 
I had gotten it in the context that it was going straight to DVD and that it wasn't going to be distributed. And I remember seeing it and then I watched it with an audience to kind of check myself and saw how the audience responded and said to the filmmaker, you know, I think that there is an audience for this movie and I think it could work in a movie theater. And even though everyone said no, everyone said no to Blair Witch and look what happened to that one. So that kind of gave me the, it gave me the strength and conviction to hang on when everyone kept saying I was a, I was a dope. <laughs> <laughs> and so what do you think it is about movies like Blair Witch Project or Paranormal Activity that makes them uh, resonate with audiences when uh, executives would look at them and, and see nothing special there? I think when something is really different, um, I think people are frightened of it. And the more, more risk adverse you are, the, the less likely you are to take obviously take risks or take a bet on something that's different. So I think when the, when something is really innovative and new and you can't really compare it to anything else, um, I think it's hard for those things to find a home, even in script form and in when they're completed. That goes for TV and movies. I think just think generally um, people are threatened by that because it's different. So I think it kind of goes hand in hand with, I think that it's not an accident that Blair Witch and Paranormal both had a similar history. Now, not as Blair Witch wasn't kicking around as long as Paranormal Activity, but the fact that people didn't realize right off the bat what a, uh, what a success either movie could be. For me, that doesn't feel like a coincidence to me. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so then Paranormal Activity did really well. And then talk about what happened in your career after that. How did you sort of attempt to capitalize on that success? Um, paranormal activity did really well. And I guess I'd, I'd been on the other side of buying movies from people, uh, and kind of turning directors into like stars in a way. When I worked at Miramax in the nineties, Miramax was kind of the triple A place to be. And that's where filmmakers wanted to be. So when, when we would buy a movie, it would, it would suddenly shine a lot of light on the filmmaker. And sometimes things worked out great and sometimes they didn't. But I was lucky enough to have experienced a lot of that by the time paranormal activity happened. So when it happened, rather than just saying, I want to now make a really expensive, like I want to go make World War Z or something really expensive, or I want to go make Oscar movies or whatever, I really, I really loved the exposure I had to the scary movie community through the movie. And I love the notion of a movie being done very, very low budget and totally independently and then distributed by a studio. So what I set my sights on was to try and build a business around that idea of making movies off the grid independently and then having them be released in a much more traditional way by big studios. And uh, everyone thought we would never be able to do that again. But then we did, uh, we did Insidious pretty soon after Paranormal and, it, and people thought we might be onto something. And then after Sinister and The Purge, Everyone decided we really weren't on something. It took a while, but uh, that was kind of how the progression went from paranormal to where the company is today. Well, right, right. Could you say a bit more about why it's so key to your success to do these lower budget movies? What is it about those low budgets that has allowed you to have such success with them? Well, when you do a movie for a low budget, the pressure to be a financial success goes down exponentially. The difference between doing a movie for three or four million dollars and doing a movie for forty, fifty million dollars is huge because it's pretty hard to make a movie that's very expensive and not 
be thinking about the result all the time. And I think generally the creative process is, is hurt if you're thinking about the end as opposed to thinking about, as opposed to focusing on kind of day-to-day decisions and also focusing on taking chances, just like what Paranormal and Blair Witch were. I, I really encourage the filmmakers that we work with to try new things and, and to take advantage of the fact that we're working with a low budget so that they can take creative risks. And, you know, I'm the first one to say some of the lower budgeted movies that we work don't resonate commercially uh, with a wide audience, but a lot of them do. And I try and have the filmmakers, once we pick what the script is and who the cast is going to be and obviously the director, that I try and really put them in a bubble to think about making the coolest, most interesting, most different movie you can make or television show you can make without thinking about the amount of money it, it will or won't make. I mean, what would you say are some of the movies that you've worked on that have been the most out there in terms of subject matter that you could never have done if it was a big-budget movie? Almost all of them. Creep, which is out now, um, could never have been done for a big budget. Uh, the Purge is my one of my favorite examples. No one That movie would never have been, just, just on a purely conceptual basis, no one would give you, no one in their right mind would give you $20 million to make a movie about what if crime were legal in America for 12 hours a year, but for 3 million, you can experiment and that experiment worked out. Um, Insidious was the same thing. When James Wan pitched Insidious, he would always pitch that the third act, this is the first movie, obviously the, the third act of the movie, when they go into the further would feel like a David Lynch movie. Now, if you're making that movie for that action movie was a million dollars. If you're making that movie for a million dollars, it's fine. But if you're making that movie for $25 million, you can't go forward with the filmmaker who wants to make the third act feel like a David Lynch movie. Like, that's not commercial enough. That's too surreal. And so that's another example. I really don't think there's really a single movie that we've made that could have been done at a higher level. And I think almost all of them would have suffered with more money. Are you talking about in terms of the budgets, in terms of CGI and stuff, that it all just looks fake? Or, or what exactly is the downside to having too much money? Well, that's one thing is simply that I think, I, you know, we have very few effects. Almost all of our effects are practical, meaning, you know, what, what happens on the screen we've really done because we can't afford CGI. And I, I don't think, I think unless you have 200 million, unless you're making Marvel movies, I think CGI is, is usually suffers, especially in horror, like, you know, mid-budget range horror movies when you see CGI, at least when I do, I react poorly. But I also mean on a purely on a storytelling level, like if you had a story about crime is legal for 12 hours a year, you wouldn't, no one would, would finance that because there's so many ways that could go wrong. Um, another example of The Purge is uh, actually both The Purge and Sinister the lead of the movie gets killed. And that's something that, that, you know, big Hollywood movies are very, very, you know, don't, don't like to do. And I understand why they don't. But again, when you have a low budget, you can, uh, you can kill your lead and it's okay. <laughs> well, yeah. And you mentioned Sinister and I really enjoyed that movie. And I think probably a lot of our listeners don't have a really good sense of what exactly a producer does on a movie like that. Could you just say sort of what exactly was your role on a movie like Sinister? Yeah, so Scott Derrickson was a filmmaker I admired, and 
I don't actually remember if he reached out to me or I reached out to him, but we reached out to each other because of uh, Emily Rose, which I always thought was a terrific movie. And we met, and he he didn't have a script, but he pitched me Sinister, and he said he was going to write it with a, with a new partner, with Cargill. And I loved the pitch, and he had a lot of other movies happening at the time that he pitched it. And he said, I said, if you give me that script and I can get the budget to the right place, we could make that movie in six months. I can, I can finance the movie in six months. I can put the finance together and, uh, and we can direct it. And at the time he, he, there were other things cooking and I think he was thinking, uh, whatever that it wouldn't happen, but or that it wouldn't happen that quickly. And, uh, anyway, but he agreed and he wrote the script and I love the script. And then, we started putting the movie together, and he um, coincidentally said, "You know, the person I always imagined to play the father in this movie was Ethan Hawke. This never, this has never happened to me before or since on any movie. It was his first choice, and he didn't know. But Ethan and I have been friends for 20 years, very, very close friends. We've worked together a lot, but we're we're also socially very close. And I told Scott that, and I said, "Don't keep your hopes up because I've sent Ethan a lot of our scripts, and he doesn't like." horror movies and I doubt he'll do it but I'll send it to him and I did send it to him and Ethan read it and lo and behold he actually responded to it and what Ethan responded to in, in Sinister was the notion that the, this was about, to him Sinister is about a father who's, choosing, who's putting his career before who's struggling with his career and struggling with where to spend his time whether it's on his career or with his family and he is, is having that dilemma and Sinister is where, a movie where he put his career before his family and the results are not good. Um, <laughs> and so we really saw that in the movie. And, and he really liked the script. He asked to meet Scott. Scott went to New York and sat with him. And they got along great. And they, they agreed to do the movie. To get, they, Ethan agreed to do the movie. And Scott was thrilled. And so Juliet Rylance was actually cast. Was a, Ethan had done a play with her. She'd never been in a movie before. And so Ethan suggested her. And we read her. And she did it. So I, we, I helped cast the movie with Scott. To go back to your question. And, um, and then, um, we shot the movie in New York. So I, I was for that movie, I was, um, some movies I'm on the set a little, some hardly ever. And some a lot, that movie, I happened to be on the set a lot. So I was on the set from beginning to end. We were shooting, we used to, we shoot most of our movies in Los Angeles where I don't have to go as often, but New York, we hadn't shut out so much. And, uh, it was a tough shoot, but we made it through. We actually shot for two days and shut the movie down for five days and then started up again. And, um, and then once the movie was done, um, the producer helps with distribution. So who's in that, in that case, it was a company called, uh, Summit, which is now part of Lionsgate, but at the time it wasn't. Lionsgate's the company that does the Hunger Games movies. And, uh, Summit is the company that did the Twilight movies. So I helped get the movie to summit and then then we work very hard once the movie's done on the marketing and the and the distribution of the movies too so currently about half of the time is spent on the movie side of my life we do scary houses we do the book obviously um but on the on the movie side of my life when we're in the movie business about 50 percent of the time is spent on the production of the movies and 50 percent of the time is spent on the distribution of the movies well, no, so now you mentioned the book and Ethan Hawke. Um, just tell us about this this Blumhouse Book of Nightmares. Uh, how did that come about? So the Blumhouse Book of Nightmares came about because um, we have an office in a funny part of L.A. And 
funny only because there's no other movie companies or TV companies where we are. We're in Koreatown. We're, we're about 10 minutes west of downtown LA and it's an unusual part of town and, and our offices, we edit in the offices and we do color correction and we do all the technical post-production work we do in our offices. And so there's a lot of, there's a, a kind of community of, of filmmakers in and out of our office all the time. And there's a place to eat. And, um, and I really wanted to create kind of a destination for people who love scary stuff. And I, as I did more after paranormal from James Wan in particular and, and Lee Wanell who, who wrote insidious one and two and directed insidious three. And those guys obviously wrote and directed the first two saw movies. Um, um, Scott Derrickson, Cargill, um, I started learning a lot more. All those guys know more about horror movies and horror, the history of horror generally than I do or did. And I started learning about it. The more I learned about it, the more into it I got. And the more kind of excited I got about the community of horror filmmakers. Um, I think because as a genre, horror is sometimes kind of looked at as kind of a second-class citizen. It makes the people who are in, makes fans like I am and people who are, who make horror kind of stick together more than maybe other genres. And so I always um, really liked encouraging the idea of a community and there really exists a community. And so, so I thought a, a logical extension of that was to do a book of, of short stories. And to me, one of the things I'm most proud of is that the book is not an anthology of stories that had been published. It's not, me choosing stories that have already been published and putting them together, but it's all original. So none of the stories have ever been published anywhere else. Everyone wrote a very a specific story for this collection. And so I'm really proud of that. And, and the reason, and the, the idea came about very organically as a result of my day-to-day -day life in uh, our offices in Koreatown. Right. And so obviously uh, most of the contributors have a lot of film and TV credits. Um, but how much experience did they have generally writing short fiction, which can be a much different medium? It was different. I think some of them had a lot, you know, Cargill had a lot and some of them had much less. And, um, you know, not everyone I asked said yes, but most of them did. And they were excited to try a new, you know, try a new medium, like you said. And, and the thing that I was careful, you know, everyone said, well, what are you going to do with the TV and movie rights? And I, I didn't do this in order to make television shows and movies from the stories. And so I, I, one of the things I said to all the contributors is you retain the movie and TV rights. And I'm not, that's not why I want to do this book. I got plenty of other intellectual property to turn into movies and television, but I, I really wanted the, I didn't want the contributors to write stories with the idea that eventually they might be a TV show or eventually they might be a movie. I really thought what would be fun is to just write a short story that was a great short story and for once not have to worry about a budget, you know, a production budget or how to, how to do it, but to let their imagination be free of the parameters around filmed content. Right. And so the full title of the book is The Blumhouse Book of Nightmares, The Haunted City. Uh, talk about the haunted city part and why did you choose that as a theme? I wanted to do something. I thought it was important to give one other rule besides make it scary. I thought that seemed too general. And most scary 
things. I don't know. I don't know if it's true of. I I don't know. I think it's probably true of literature too, but definitely true of movies and definitely true of television. Um, take place in the country because there's no one around, or at least in in a or at least in a suburb where you're in a house, and there's not a lot of scary tradition in urban environments, and that's because that makes sense because there are a lot of people around, so it's less scary. So I didn't say it had to take place in a city. I, all I said is it had to have something to do with a city. And so I thought that was counterintuitive to what a lot of people would do. And I, I kind of like the idea of, of mix it up like that. But I wasn't, you know, super strict about it. But I just said it would be great if it could kind of touch on a city in some way or another. Right, right. And it seems to me that if you're writing about cities in the present moment, that you have to deal with the idea of uh, runaway gentrification on the one hand and urban decay, on the other hand. And a bunch of the stories in this book deal with those themes. Um, the ones I have written down here are Hellhole, Gent Home, and Donations. Do you just want to talk about how these stories dealt with gentrification and urban decay? Yeah, well, I think that uh, I don't want to give away what the stories are, so I don't want to talk about that too much. But I think that the way to most effectively tell scary stories is to root them in real themes, you know, we, we have a movie coming out called The Visit that uh, M. Night Shyamalan directed, and we were just talking about this, and he says, you know, every movie that he does is a drama, and then he drapes it in a genre. And I think a lot of the stories in the book are really about true-to-life things that we're afraid of, and they're fictionalized, obviously. But I, I think also... You know, that's really what The Purge was. That's what Sinister was. And I, I really think that's kind of the heart and soul of what uh, of what makes an effective, scary story, scary television show, or scary movie. Uh-huh. I also just wanted to mention there are stories, and some of my favorite stories in the book are were the ones by Eli Roth, George Gallo, and Steve Faber. Um, and he, people may know Eli Roth as the director of Hostel. And historian here, it takes a su- somewhat similar premise, but then takes it in a completely different, unexpected direction. So I just particularly want to uh, point people toward that one. Yeah, I loved his story. And um, yeah, he was the first person in. So I, I asked him first, and he was the first person in. I think it's something that he'd been thinking about i think he actually had a version of it and he wasn't sure what he was going to do with it and he was very generous about um when i asked him to do it it was he said i have something i'm going to send it to you in a week and he sent me that story uh you know a week later and it was great that he said yes because it was great to tell everyone else you know eli's going to do one of these so it really helped uh galvanize the whole thing actually Mm mm-hmm well, and you mentioned uh, Ethan Hawke earlier, and there's an Ethan Hawke piece in this book. And my my girlfriend and I were both just kind of curious about the story behind that, if there's any, uh, just where it came from. I don't know if, if if you can say anything about that without giving it away, but is there anything you can say about the the origin of yeah, that Yeah, well, that, that story also, um, Ethan had written a version of that story uh, some time ago. It's based on something that uh, that actually happened to him. And, um, he, Ethan's written three books now and he wasn't sure he, he had written it down. He wasn't sure if he was going to use it himself in a book of his or what the right place for it was. And when I called him and described what we were doing, he said, I have just the thing. I know exactly what to do. 
and he dusted it off and he reworked he worked on it quite a lot um to uh to get it to the shape that it's in now in the book but that was uh i love his story i think it's so cool i really really think it's uh it's kind of awesome and um and that was the story behind that yeah that was definitely the sense i had reading it that it was at least partly autobiographical so that's interesting to to have yeah. that confirmed yeah but i'm not saying what part <laughs> <laughs> um i also just wanted to mention there's a story called dreamland by michael olson and one line in that that jumped out at me is it said that uh, that sleep research is finally getting the attention it deserves, given that poor sleep kills more people than cancer. And I just thought it was funny because this episode is actually sponsored by Casper Mattress. So I just wanted to remind our listeners that they should be, be sleeping on a, a, a an affordable and comfortable Casper mattress or else they're just probably going to die. Yeah, they, they should. If they, if they don't sleep on a Casper mattress, they, exactly, their life will be short. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> How did that happen? That's great. Do they sponsor all of yours? No, this or is the first. This is the first one that they've sponsored. Well, this is perfect for them. <laughs> um. So, say a bit more about the the horror movies that you've worked on. I'm just curious. Just how do you? Do, what do you see as the role of horror in society? Like, do you see it as just good entertainment, or do you think that these movies, um, like help people out in their lives and stuff like that? You know, I think I think it's hard to generalize. I think some horror movies are just that. They're a fun ride for an hour and a half. And I think some horror movies uh, actually have a lot to say. I mean, definitely, you know, you know, the horror movies in the 70s started the kind of tradition of laying in um, social messages to horror movies. Uh, the Purge, for sure, is a cautionary tale. Uh, and interestingly enough, it was very much understood. Both Purge movies, there have been two, and we're, we're about to make a third one. But both of the movies in Europe in particular were very, everyone understood them as a cautionary tale of, of what would happen if, um, if we stay on the track that we're going on, which is there, there's a, there's a shooting of some kind or another, and then the gun laws get less, not more. Um, where could that go? And James is James DeMonico, who, wrote a story in the book and, uh, and who wrote and directed the purge. Um, the, the purge was his idea of like, this is where we could be headed. Um, so there's a real social commentary in in the purge. What I was kind of alluding to before is that there were <laughs> sometimes in the United States, it was misinterpreted. A lot of people saw the purge like, yeah, I'm going to kill someone, <laughs> um, which was not the director's intent, but, that's not disappointing to me. It wasn't disappointing to him. You can't control what people take from what they see. You know that that and 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 movies first and foremost need to be entertaining. That's at least for the movies that we make. That's what we're focused on is entertaining people. Uh, if there's a message or a lesson or something else woven in there, and the movie's still entertaining, all the better. But the minute you start making movies that are lessons, no one sees the movies anymore they can get lessons from other things. Well, although I did hear you say that Barry Levinson originally wanted to make a documentary about pollution in Chesapeake Bay, and his agent told him no one would watch that, so he made The Bay as a horror movie instead? That's true. That's true. John Burnham was his agent, and uh, he did. He wanted to make a doc He has a house in the Chesapeake Bay. He wanted to make a documentary about the pollution of it, and, and his agent said make a horror movie about it. So we made a found footage movie. We produced it called The Bay, it was one of the early on, one of the earlier 
first movies we did after Paranormal around the time we made Insidious. We made The Bay. And there, there are some very effective, scary moments in it. There, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't a mass appeal movie uh, for a bunch of reasons. Probably no, one, no one's too interested in hearing. But, uh, <laughs> but it was a really interesting movie. There were some good jump scares in it. And, uh, and that's exactly what it was. It's a, it's a great, it's a really shrewd thing to bring up because it's exactly what I'm, what I'm talking about. Did anyone ever say that they got concerned about pollution in Chesapeake Bay after seeing the bay or anything like that? I think the, the, the thing that went wrong with the bay is that we got too much message and not enough entertainment. So that's kind of what I was saying mm. before is that if there's too much message, the movie didn't get a, wasn't widely distributed. It wasn't widely released. It wasn't seen by a lot of people. So as a result, it didn't have a big effect. So we needed more, more entertainment DNA in it and less social message. And, it, and you really have to balance those two things. You could make a great, a movie with a very, very important message, but if no one sees it, no one hears your message. I mean, this is an old argument that, you know, you hear a lot. But you really got to balance those two things. So the reason the Bay wasn't as effective, I, whether or not it got people talking about the Chesapeake Bay or not, I'm sure it did, but such a small number that it had no effect. Had it been the hit that Insidious was, I think it could have made it a much bigger part of the conversation. But um, we didn't get the level of entertainment value we needed to make, turn it into, into a big hit successful movie like Insidious. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I mean, you were talking earlier a little bit about the horror community. Could you just say a bit more about sort of getting involved with the horror community? Have you met some really colorful characters or what sort of things have people said about your movies to you that you've among horror fans that you've met? Well, I was more talking about the community of filmmakers as opposed to straight fans. But I've met a ton of fans. You know, we do the, we've done several haunted houses. We did one called the Blumhouse of Horrors. We did a couple based on The Purge. We did one based on Insidious. And then, the, I think for me, the most fun about haunted houses is when, you're, when I'm actually at the haunted house, you get to talk to people after they go through. And with movies, you know, you don't get to do, unless you stand outside the theater, which is a little weird, you don't really get to do that. So you hear, I guess, from fans later, but not right after they've seen it. But with a haunted house, you really got to talk to people who love scary stuff right after... Um, right after they've experienced something. And I guess what I like about the community and, and, and it's a funny segue, but you know, we have this movie called Gem and the Holograms, which comes out in October. And what Gem and the Holograms to me, what Gem and the Holograms is about, it's about a movie that not only says it's okay to be different, but it says you should celebrate being different and whatever's different about you. You should, you should push that. You should not only should you not hide it, but you should really push that. And that's what life is about, I guess. And I feel like, to me, that's why, I guess, probably why I love horror more than any other genre, or the fans of horror more than any other genre, is that there's a real embracing of, like, you know, people who were strange or odd or whatever, and, and that within that community, it's okay to be that way. And I guess that's what I, that's what really resonates for me within the scary movie community. Huh. I mean, it's interesting because one observation I've heard a lot about horror authors is people say that horror writers are always really cheerful and comedy writers are always really morose and depressed. And I was just curious, you know, you must have met a ton of horror writers at this point, right? What's been your experience? Are they, do they tend to be cheerful people or do they tend to be 
uh, dark disturbed uh, people? Well, well, or? I, I can speak to that on the set, you know, which is really interesting. The set of a comedy is all, you nine times out of ten exactly what you just said. Really dreary and serious. And the set of a horror movie is the exact opposite. Like, you know, one of the reasons Ethan didn't want to do a horror movie is because he's always thought it'd be scary to make a horror movie. There's nothing scary about making a horror movie. There are children and tutors and 60 people and you film the takes and little and makeup that looks funny because it's not lit right. And so, you know, when you, <laughs> on the set of a horror movie is very fun and funny. And so I'm not surprised to hear that. I think, uh, I, I don't know why that is. People, I mean, the horror, horror community, whether they're writers or whether they're directors, I feel like they kind of get out their moroseness in their work, which makes them cheerier. I could also say that about the people. I mean, Lee is, Lee Wanell has, is hilarious. One of the funniest people I've ever met. And, James and Scott there, all, all, all those guys are very, not, not the personality you would expect from horror people, but, but I, I, that's, that's the rule, not the exception, I think. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you ever saw a documentary called, um, I think it was called American Movie, but it's about this guy trying to make a horror movie, and he's, he's just out in the middle of nowhere. And there's this really, it was kind of scary to me part, where they're trying to do stunts, and they have no idea what they're doing. And they're just trying to slam somebody's head through a cabinet, and they don't really know how to do this as an effect. And so they're just smashing a real guy's head against a real cabinet and not succeeding in breaking through. And they're just doing take after take of that. But it's just always stuck with me as, as an example of how horror is just something that a lot of people start with. People, people see it as an avenue. And I heard you say in an interview that it kind of annoys you sometimes when people see horror movies just as a stepping stone to get to bigger and better things. Could you just talk about that as horror as a... Uh, as a place for yeah, it filmmakers it to play. It doesn't annoy me. I, or maybe, maybe I said it, but I didn't mean it or I was misquoted. <laughs> but it doesn't, not for other people. It just, it annoys me when people assume that of me. It doesn't <laughs> okay. apply to me. But, uh, what other people do is, is, uh, their own. I, I, I'm not, I'm not judgmental of, although I do give James Wan a lot of shit because he said, uh, he would never direct another horror movie after The Conjuring. And by the way, he is directing another one just like <laughs> he said he would. Um, so I like to give him a hard time for that. But for me, I didn't make all these scary movies in order to make Whiplash, which we also made. And now I'm going to make other movies like Whiplash. Like, I love Whiplash. I'm really glad that we made Whiplash. But that doesn't change. It didn't change the trajectory of the company, which is scary stuff. And that's what I love. That's what we do. That's what I'm going to continue to do. I'm not doing it in order to do something else. Uh that's all I said about that. But I'm, but people do. And, uh, you know, Roger Corman and the people that Roger Corman gave a shot to, you know, is the best example of that. I mean, he had tons and tons of, um, of actors and directors and writers go through his, his, uh, horror factory who turned out to be better known for other things. And I, you know, I think that's awesome. I, I have nothing against that. I think that's terrific. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I also wanted to ask you about, there was this show, The Jinx, that my girlfriend and I were just obsessed with when it came out. And I saw that you were an executive producer on that. I was just wondering, if, what was your take on that? What was your involvement with that show? Yeah, I, I, did, I was similarly in, involved in The Jinx as I was in, in Paranormal or this movie Unfriended that, that came out earlier this year. Um, and the Knights movie, The Visit. And it seems to be a, a lot of the 
not so much TV, but a lot of the movies that we do, we get involved when there's a rough cut or a version, and sometimes the version has been shopped a bit or whatever, and the person behind it, that wasn't the case with the Jinx, but it was the case with all the other movies that I just mentioned, and the person behind it is like, I know I made something great, and why isn't the world listening? And we've done a lot of listening. So the jinx is something that I saw early on. And um, no one on the business side of television was paying attention to it. And so I uh, I got behind it and really helped. This is obviously before HBO was involved and really helped figure out how to get it out there into the world. And that was my contribution to the jinx. Well, that's pretty shocking to me that no one was was interested in it, given how compelling it is. Why, why do you think that is, that, that people weren't jumping on it? You know, I don't know, except for the same reason that people didn't jump on Paranormal Activity and the people didn't jump on Blair Witch. Uh, the one reason, though, which is, makes the comparison not fair, is that only the first episode was together, so people were only judging the series based on seeing the first episode, not, not the subsequent five. Although I thought the first episode was incredibly compelling. Uh, that may be one. And another thing, you know, people bring, you know, Andrew's like, oh, he's a filmmaker. So why, how does, why should he know what television is? I think that's another one that's confusing to people. The, the world doesn't like to see people switch gears or they're not used to it. And when you do switch gears, it's always harder. And so to switch from a documentary filmmaker to someone who made a television series is not something people initially could get their head around. That's another theory. But uh, I don't know. You know, again, it's something odd, original, unique. You know, Durst is an unbelievably um, complicated character, and there have been a ton of stories about him, but never the definitive story. But every single person that had a story said that theirs was the definitive story. So I think I think all those are kind of reasons that that uh, initially it didn't resonate like the way it did eventually. Uh-huh. All right, cool. So uh, we're running a little short on time here, and I did want to just give you a chance to mention other projects you have coming up. But you have, it sounds like you have a, just a ton of other projects coming up. But do you want to just give us a rundown of what you're working on now, what people should keep an eye out for? Yeah, we have this movie um, that uh, Joel Edgerton directed. It's his first movie. It's called The Gift, and it's with, uh, with Jason Bateman, and Joel stars in it, and Rebecca Hall. And it's a... Uh, I think it's a terrific movie. It's, it's a thriller. It's super taut and super creepy. And I think Joel just did an amazing job on it. That comes out, uh, on August 7th. And then we have, uh, Sinister 2, the sequel to Sinister, which Scott Derrickson and Cargill wrote and, uh, and we're very involved in. I'm excited for people to see that. That comes out later in August. Um, and then just for the rest of the year, we have this movie that I think I talked about before, M. Night Shyamalan's movie called The Visit, which comes out in September. And then we have Eli Roth's movie. Eli Roth, uh, who's obviously a contributor to the book, but also um, has another movie, a movie called Green Inferno, that couldn't find a home that I saw and really liked. So we're going to release that movie, that we're doing more of the distribution ourselves. And then the last two movies of the year are the final chapter of Paranormal Activity, which I'm happy and sad about. And then the movie that I, that I talked about before, Gem and the Holograms. So those are the movies that we have for, uh, for the rest of this year. That's what's happening on the movie side. And then, of course, you know, I've been doing a lot of talk about 
about this book, and we hope to do more books. The first, this is an anthology, but then I think we want to do um, novels, and you know, I have an idea for another anthology I'd like to do. So hopefully, we'll be doing more of that too, and more haunted houses. <laughs> All right, great. Well, no, I really enjoyed the, the Blumhouse Book of Nightmares, so I'm definitely looking forward to, to more books from you. And uh, yeah, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Jason Blum, and this new book, as we said, it's called The Blumhouse Book of Nightmares, The Haunted City. So Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Jason Blum for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Pat M. Fish, who writes, A real treasure of a podcast. Great from the very beginning. Very well done and entertaining and educational. So big thanks again to Pat M. Fish for that great review. And of course, a special thank you to A Strange Loop, Mark Beaupre-Fam, Valencina, and Louise, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. As I mentioned earlier, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is only possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.